I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Jeremy Sace on the show today of Dujac and also Trien. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Levy. Nice to see you. Your grandfather had a financial interest in Pustor Mm -hmm. uh, from early days. Yeah. And then your father, Jock, went to do harvest at Pustor when Mm -hmm. he was a a younger man. Mm -hmm. And and what happened next? So uh, essentially, my my grandfather was an industrialist and was very much into food and wine. Um, and when I say very much, he was, he was properly obsessive. I mean, it was his, it was his uh, raison d'etre. Um, and he, um, he took my father vi- to visit a lot, of, a lot of cellars from a very early age. So my father spent time and knew Pierre Ramonet from early on. Um, he knew um, Henri Gouge. He knew the Sepp d'Angerville and, and Jacques d'Angerville and... And the, the people who were the original estate bottlers of Burgundy. And um, he decided, he, you know, he stopped school after the baccalaureate. My grandfather helped him do a few further jobs to get some experience. He came to New York very young to work at, um, for a year at, at, in a bank. And then he went to work for the family company, which at that stage was owned by Nabisco. But, um, and he decided that this was not for him. He did not want to be involved in something that big. He did not want to. Um, he wanted to also have his product and something that he could put his name on and be and feel proud of. And he didn't feel that that was going to exist in an industrial context. He decided he wanted to make wine. And as my grandfather had this this uh, this interest in the Pousdar, my father went to work to harvest there, sixty six and sixty seven. The this is where the French word vacciner and to vaccinate. Um, uh, is 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 appropriate because he said you've, you've got to vaccinate my son. Either he's going to take to this or he's going to hate it. But he must not come out of this thinking, yeah, maybe. Or it's got to be. You've got to show him. You've got to really show him the job. Teach him to make wine, so he can decide because it's a big life choice. And uh, and my father loved it. And so yeah, Gérard Potel was really um, the guy who taught my father to make wine initially. And you. Father ended up purchasing some property. In so he was looking for he was looking for for property at that stage. I mean, at this stage, it, 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 
it was not quite the playing the playing field it was that it's become. It was more much more affordable. On the other hand, making a living from growing just grapes was not completely obvious. I mean, if you think that Aubert de Villene, for instance, was the first full-time de Villene family member to devote himself exclusively to DRC, all the others kept side activities because it, even DRC did not quite pay enough. It was another era. And... Um, <clears throat> He was looking, and one day Gérard Potel called him and said, there's something that's coming up for sale in Moissani, which you should really have a look at. There's a house, four and a half hectares with it. Um, they used to own Claude Labussière, those people, um, but they'd sold that a few years before, and where, where someone sells a big vineyard like that, there's a chance that one day, a little further down the line, there might be more, and that was indeed the case. So there was some Claude Saint-Denis, some Claude Laroche, Combat, and Gevray Village, which are still, I feel, our, our core holdings and our um, part of our DNA. And that Claude Boussier went to Rumier. Yes, yes, yes. That was that was uh, that was. I, I don't know if it was sold in '66 or a bit earlier to Rumier. So took over in '67. First real vintage '69. What happened in '68? So uh, so it was signed in uh, in '68, and '68 was the first year he made wine. But he had he had bought all the old barrels that were empty because all the wines went to the Negus. But so there were empty barrels that were there, um, and as he regularly. As repeated over over the years, uh, he then proceeded to have the worst vintage that Burgundy probably saw in the 20th century. It rained for 45 days straight from August onwards, and he describes it as it was like harvesting manure, uh, big clouds of botrytis dust above the tanks, which he then put onto these old barrels, which turned out to be full of VA and Brett. And as he regularly has said since, it will never be worse. And it has indeed only been up. Uh, even the bad vintages since, he says, yes, this is bad, but it's not like 68 was. And so he bulked out most of 68. 69 provided a very welcome contrast, very low yields because a lot of the vineyards were not in great condition. Uh, the former owners had not necessarily bothered replacing dead vines, things like that. So the yields were microscopic. Uh, the tanks in, a, in wine school and just generally as a winemaker, you like tanks that have a, enough grapes in them because it, it's going to hold temperature better, the fermentation dynamics. He said, um, by the book, 69 was not supposed to turn out well because things barely got up. You know, you had two feet of grapes in the bottom of the tank and it was lost surface area, hard to get warm like you should and that sort of thing. The wines turned out great. The wines are still, I feel, the benchmark of the, the demands. Depressing if you think of it as possibly you peak on your first real vintage or something like that. But no, he's made good, more good wine since. But the 69s turned out very well. But you've got to remember that you've, you've written off one vintage. You've got two more vintages before, two more years go by before you start releasing. And he still set aside almost half of it because there was less commercial pressure. And he felt like if I get another 68, if I have another write-up year, I've got to have some stock so I have something to keep into the market and exist. And very, um, and so we've been. He it came in handy more than once further down the line. And the '69 Moray Village was served by um, by Bocuse and his gang at the, the Elysee Palace to the, um, when when Bocuse was made a me- member of the Legion of Honor, um, and I the Legion of Honor. Um, the Moray '69 was served, I think, with a cheese rather than with a truffle soup, which is too bad. But um, it was it was it was it was. Um, a telling moment. People paid attention to these things, and it got the name de Mendujac out there. But your dad also had strong connections in the restaurant industry. Mm-hmm. Well, my grandfather especially, yes. My grandfather was both a patron, and he was part of a club called the Club des Sons. The Club des Sons has historical ties with the Michelin Guide, and he went to a lot of restaurants, and once my father had wine for sale, he never went to the restaurant without his order book. And he always said, you've got to try my son's wine. And, um, and people did. And 
And that getting the one order is, as someone who sold, as was a sales rep once, that first order is always easy. It's that reorder that always tells you if something is good or not. And, uh, and very fortunately, there were some reorders. So what is Jock like as a person, your dad? He's, he's pretty great. I mean, of course, I look at this with, uh, with a son's eyes which are not always the most indulgent. So I've got to, you know, I recognize his, he's got tremendous human qualities. He's a very generous person. He's very trusting and delegates for real, which is not that common in our job. I see a lot of my friends and people in the same generation or younger who are starting and who have real conflicts with their, with their, uh, with, when there's a generational change. It's not easy working with your family. My father's made that easier than, uh, than most of what I've observed in other people. He's letting me make my own mistakes. And he told me as much. He said, you're going to make mistakes as a winemaker. It's the nature of the thing. You're, go ahead and make those mistakes, but make sure you learn from them because to make the same mistakes multiple times, that is not excusable, as we all know. Not that that necessarily slows us down sometimes. If you know, something doesn't work, sometimes try a little more is, <laughs> is the way you go. But, um, but no, he's been, he's been very... Um, very good about that. And so when I started the Negocion project in 2000, for instance, that was, that was because he was not ready to retire, but he was willing to give me some space and some tank space and some, some backing to get some grapes and to start having a bit more experience and have some tanks. It was never a brutal transition. It was never, okay, I'm retired now and you're in charge. But it came to, we take decisions together, but the finality of decision in 2000 was with him and, and uh, for the Domaine wines and for the Negociant wine, the finality of decision was with me. So most of the time, we just completely agree about what should happen anyway. And let's face it, when he said something, you know, experience counts for so much in winemaking that I was prone to listening. And, and a little further down the line, you know, I found myself taking more decisions, being assertive differently. I, would say, I wouldn't say I was never, I was always pretty assertive because, you know, when you're 25 years old, or much like when you're 18, you know everything. And so you might as well go chasing straight ahead. But while you know everything, a few, a few years later, you realize that you really know nothing. And so perhaps you're just a little less categorical. So anyway, it's, it's been a gentle transition. People ask me what the, what the first year that I really consider my own is. I'm not sure I've got, I mean, it's somewhere between, I mean, some significant differences happened in 01 in terms of... Um, I pushed the late malolactics in 2001, and we've been doing late malolactics since. So I feel like my influence has been easy, or there's something that was a, a, one of the few big decisions you can take in winemaking, the timing of mallow, um, and staying on the lees for longer. That's, that was, a, that was a, a first shift, perhaps, um, and one of the things where I had a genuine influence on. But I was definitely not the person in charge in the winery. In 02, after Christophe Morin, we can come back to that, after he passed away, I felt like I had to take a whole bunch of responsibility that he, the things that, um, that Christophe, our vineyard manager, but also cellar master, um, had been covering. That led me to take on, to shoulder a certain number of decisions. And then 04, 05 was really when, when Diana was uh, more established as well, where we really, I think we really started um, having the final word on most things. And my father took on more of a mentoring capacity and less of an executive capacity. So let's rewind a little bit about you and the family. Jock, for whom the domain is named, mm -hmm. Dujac, uh, exactly. domain Dujac, marries Rosalind, mm -hmm. who is your mother and also American. Yeah. And you study uh, abroad mm -hmm. uh, with travel to both England and the United States. Mm -hmm. So you go off to college and you're the oldest brother. Yeah. 
and you have two younger brothers. Correct. And you're thinking, maybe I don't want to do wine. And what happens next? Yeah, when you grow up on a winery, usually you dream about the usual stuff that kids dream. So we want to be a cowboy, an astronaut, or, or both. I had a really hard time appreciating that wine was something that could possibly be exciting. I mean, I saw my parents were involved with it. Some of their friends enjoyed drinking it. It was something that the older generation was much more involved and, and interested in. But young people my age, in my, in my, in my village, I mean, I went to Morisani Primary School um, there, and the people who were going into wine were sort of being forced. Their parents were saying, look, we're getting tired. It's, you're going to have to do this. So they were not necessarily going in it by choice. And... They were certainly not excited about it. I'm talking really about the guys in my class because in my sunny, there's been some some uh, generational sh- uh, changes that have been great, and some people have really come back and done extraordinary things. But there's also a few people who just are carrying on, carrying on part of what constitutes the mines in the Burgundy mine, minefield, um, to use the cliche. But um, the so going going abroad was very important for me because it allowed me to see more clearly what I was um, what I had a chance, an opportunity to be a part of. Um, when I started university, the terms, it was in 94, the first year, and um, the term didn't start till mid-October. And so, you know, I'm, you're not going to stay idle during harvest time. And I'd already, I'd enjoyed the buzz of harvest. I mean, it's, it's an exciting time of year, um, especially, well, it's, it's, well it, it's very, you live it very differently when you're in a position of responsibility than when you're not. But... Um, I did that first harvest, and I was really, I knew nothing. I was cleaning buckets. I was helping load tanks. I was doing the odd pump over. I did the famous, when you want to be derogatory, someone, someone's ability in the, in, the, in the winery, you say they don't even know how to connect a pump. It's, for some reason, that's the low, low person who doesn't know how to <laughs> connect a pump. And I did not know how to connect a pump at the time, but I learned, and so that was good. And now I know I can, now I can be one of those people who looks at others and judges them. Um, but the... <clears throat> I did that, and it was not, I mean, it was not all, I was not entirely sold. I, I, working with my dad, he was super happy to have me with him in the winery. But usually we had other interns, and that year there was no other interns, and I just felt like I was missing out on what was fun about the Dujac harvest, which was that there's, there's youth there. Um, there's a bunch of people who are really into wine, who've traveled from Australia, New Zealand, California in some cases, and, and other places, who come with a ton of questions and a ton of passion. And, and I, didn't have, I didn't have the questions yet. I didn't have the context or the background. And so I was just doing things a little mechanically, but I, I enjoyed the, the excitement of it. And I, I enjoyed the, the decision-making of, that's involved. Do you pick now? Do you pick later? Do you de-stem? Do you not de-stem? There's so many small options because I really think that, as I said, there's only so many great big decisions you can take in winemaking, but there's a lot of small ones that are that lead a path to a final wine, and it's a sort of consistency in the direct in the decision making that is going to result in Rumier having Rumier wines being so Rumier and Dujac wines being so Dujac and so on. It goes beyond just the whole cluster thing. There's a certain consistency there in the decision making, which is someone's a winemaker's aesthetic. And the more experience you have, the more the more this becomes uh, visible through vintages ripe, less ripe, um, rainier, less rainier, whatever, more tannic and, and so on. So my father at this stage, yeah, he's, he's got a few, a fair few vintages under his belt, and um, and I really enjoyed. Seeing that he was, I didn't know how to ask the questions to understand 
the decisions. But I, I got a, a glimpse of that. And then I went to university, and I called my parents, and uh, because I was at the Freshers Fair, where there's all the clubs and societies and stuff like that, and there's um, there was the the wine circle, and I and I looked at it, and it was 45 pounds for the year to sign up for this, and I had my allowance was something like 20 pounds a week. This was a major blow to my budget. And I, uh, and I called my parents and said, look, you know, I, I'm thinking of joining, but really it's a bit expensive. And uh, my parents said, we'll cover it. No problem. Go, just, just do it. Let's do, consider that. We'll expense it. Um, and so I did. And all of a sudden I was surrounded by 50 other people, of which most were really passionate about wine, really into it. And I realized it was not a, a generation, a, an, an old versus young person thing. It was just a, a question of I needed to find my peers. And I did. And, and then I just became obsessive about it. And my brother, Paul, actually is pretty much refuses to drink wine and dates back from those days because he said that was all you talked about and you disgusted me from it. I probably just disgust him generally. But I mean, just I think about wine for sure. It's just I, I talked to it. I, I was, yeah, the way that um, someone who's discovered something he perhaps had been missing his whole life or whatever, I just, I was grilling my father, let's open this, when should we drink that? Should we get some, I, it was, let me see the wine list and, um, and let's have one of each. And um, it was just, um, after that, it, it took off really quick. And then I knew. So you found yourself working in Napa Valley in an internship with Robert Mondavi. Mm-hmm. And what year was that? 98. So that was, I finished university in, in England. I did biology and then I went to study in Dijon, uh, viticulture science, um, Vine Sciences was the name of the course, and um, it was a good course because I'd reali- I, it allowed me to realize just how pertinent biology was to um, at least the grape growing, but as well the fermentation, but really this focused more on the grape growing. So I was more interested in the living organism of the, the, the plant than in the chemistry of the wine. And I didn't love the, the professor who taught the enology course, so I decided to focus with, with the viticulture and the enology would come later. And um, and then I took a shortcut by marrying an enologist and just outsourcing um, <laughs> the talent. But uh, the so ninety eight I was I was supposed to do an internship as part of the end of this course, and rather than do it in France, I thought it would be a good opportunity to go travel a little further away. And Mondavi had a really great research viticulture research um, department, and so I spent the summer. And they have they have a lot of vineyards, and uh, and and Opus was involved in the um, in the whole package of vineyards that needed to be sampled regularly because they collected data about everything, aerial photographs, and obviously just samples multiple times a week. And it was just, it was, I mean, it was an incredibly thorough and thoughtful organization. The amount of data they collected and analyzed, and there was a reason why Mondavi was as successful or is as successful as it's been. And I, and I saw some of that. And it was good to see some of the new world energy that's devoted because in Burgundy, no one's, I mean, people talk about it, of redrawing the boundaries of, of one vineyard or whatever, but there's, as a whole, no. I and mean, people recognize this as the established order. The reorientation is decided by the orientation of your neighbor, because if you don't plan in the same direction, then you're going to have to have your, where's your tractor going to turn around? Things like that. In Napa, if a vine's not performing, it's, I don't like the San Giovese right here, let's plant it, let's turn it over to Cabernet. Or the market's demanding for Cabernet, let's plant it over to Cabernet. So we there was a there was a fair amount uh, just it, so many questions so many so many resources being thrown at improving and at at making it um, a world class region world class wines so that was I, I thought that was very uh, that was uh, that was fascinating I really enjoyed that that's the ninety eight vintage that you were there that that vintage was known to be a little cool mm-hmm. uh, in terms of California what was it like on the ground uh, while that was happening. 
it was it was a mixed summer. I mean, it was it was um, it's got a reputation. Of, I think I mean, there's several eras of California. I'm looking at this very much from the outside, and uh, your California aficionado listeners will possibly beg to differ. But it was the beginning of the real rise in ripeness in California. I thought things were really pretty pretty ripe and pretty good in a lot of 98s. I liked them a lot, but there was, um, and there were a few heat spikes during the summer. I remember getting caught in traffic jam on a 110 degree day with no air conditioning. It was memorable. Um, with Lee Hudson, actually. And um, <clears throat> we, um, so the heat, spi- the heat spikes were, I saw sunburn, sunburn grapes for the first time in my life. Then I saw more that same season in Burgundy. And there were, there were a few, there was a little bit of rain. It was really not much. I mean, by, Bur- by Burgundian standards, in most years, we get way, way more rain in the summer. But it was rain in an area that just doesn't usually have rain. And so the grapes are not ready for it. It's like a virgin immune system or something like that. And botrytis did take off, especially the Chardonnay and the Pinot. And and I don't think people were as... Now people have optical sorting tables. I mean, everyone's sorting everything. Most years, there's very little to sort as far as I can tell in California. I mean, maybe I lack imagination, but I just, I see the fruit comes in as very healthy. There, I don't think they had quite the equipment and things needed to come in because the rot was progressing. And so, yeah, and I think the Pinot and Chardonnay in 98 were not as exciting. I think the Cabernet turned out just fine, personally, for my taste. I like the Mondavi Cabin 98, the reserve, mm-hmm. myself. I mean, mm-hmm. it was always for the ages, but you know, I was good one. I yeah, no, I like those. I mean, I've got a I've got a very European palate, so I like those lower alcohol wines. I'm willing to take a little bit of herbaceousness. It's yeah, vegetal. It's the it's a kiss of death commercially, but I why is it so negative? I'm not quite sure. But what about those sunburn grapes? What what does that what does that mean? Well, so when um, essentially what happens is you get a big heat spike, and doesn't it's not necessarily about absolute heat, but it's about Heating faster than the plant can physiological deal with, uh, physiologically deal with it. So the, you start evaporating a lot from your leaves and and from your. Usually, it happens when your grapes are still a little green, and you're evaporating faster than you can absorb the water. So especially in, in California, you can open the irrigation if you can and if you're there in time. But if you don't, you end up with grapes that just they can't they can't keep up with the rate. So you just have cell death on the surface of the berries, and then they shrivel and and die and become but because they're green, they're still attached to the pedestal. And so you need to sort that through at harvest because it's as if those tans were frozen in time. Um, they make it then at harvest. And, and as you put, if you put a, a, those very dry, I and mean, when I'm talking dry, they're like, like stones, into the tank, well, there's going to be juice. Eventually there's alcohol. Alcohol and water are very powerful solvents. They'll just re-swell uh, back up a little bit and they'll start leaching some of that green tannin. And so you just end up... In years where you have a lot of sunburn, yeah, you end up with very, um, very hard angular tannins that just never, never really come around. Because that's not what we would think about a, a sunny year. Like I'll just, you know, from the simplistic view of not being a grower. It's, uh, yeah, no, a sunny year, it's, uh, sun presents its dangers as well. And it's, a, it's, and it's not, I mean, a whole season can be cool, but if there's one heat spike in the middle of it, you can find, I mean, we got a bit of sunburn in Burgundy in 2012, which is not, and especially thought of as a warm year, but there were a few days in early July, uh, which resulted in actually we lost something like 20% of our grapes, I'd say, to the sunburn in a year that was not big to begin with. But, you know, you sort it out. And that's the the great thing about about the fact that Burgundy sells much more easily and for higher prices than it used to is that you can afford to make the choices that where you leave stuff on the ground. If you think it's not going to make the cut qualitatively, you people now have this realization that first and foremost, you've got to make it good. 
because if it's good, you'll always be okay. Whereas once upon a time, it was just, should I make it, should I make more of it and make it a little less good or should I make it better? And, and if I was going to make it better, I was not, my efforts were not going to be repaid. Now they are. So that's, I mean, I think that's, there's been a very positive feedback in Burgundy where <clears throat> as estates made more money, they reinvested massively in their tools. When you look, go around Burgundy, you don't, I don't know, you don't see especially lavish um, houses. You don't see, on the other hand, you see some pretty fancy wineries or some pretty fancy winery equipment. People have invested in that. Some people have also invested in the manpower. So at harvest, the teams are bigger, the sorting tables are longer, the, all that sort of thing. And there's, and that's, I feel like Burgundy is, is um, if you look at the 70s, there's two and two and maybe three good vintages. Maybe, or maybe, and there's, there's, a, there's some which have some good wines here and there, but between hailstorms that weren't sorted through enough afterwards or under-ripeness or crops that were too big or whatever, uh, 60s, 60s better decade, but nonetheless, a lot of disasters as well. If you look at the 90s and 2000s, there's a lot of good wine that got made during those decades, including vintages which once upon a time would have been washouts. And um, now, now I mean, 2001 should have been should have been dismal. They're great, um, and that's really because people were able to to sort, to take the decisions, to to make a few tough calls and take risks, and um, and ultimately come out okay with with a, with, a, with a great with some great wine at the end. So while you're in California, you meet Diana Snowden, now mm -hmm. your wife. And how did you meet? Uh, she was working for Mondavi as well. She was another part of their sampling team and gang. I, I thought, uh, you know, I, I picked up on the fact that um, that she was very good looking and 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 beautiful. And I thought maybe maybe I could maybe I could go sample with her instead of sampling with uh, you, uh, Giannis. Um, and um, the guy sampled with most of the time. And so I, I somehow contrived to try to get on her sampling team with limited success, to be honest. Um, and then I, I decided to resort to, to dirtier tactics. And um, I, I baked what is, uh, which I feel is my famous flourless chocolate cake and brought into the office, you know, to just as a gesture towards everyone. But because I, you know, in France, you say that the way, the way to a man or woman's heart is really through the stomach. And so I, I thought... How can I go wrong with this? And of course, she didn't show up to work that day, um, <laughs> which was, I, I was so undone. But I, uh, in, a, in a moment of inspiration, I set, some, um, I set some cake aside. And the next day I presented, I said, I saved a little this for you. And all of a sudden, she thought I was a much, much more interesting character than she had realized. And then we went out on a few excursions. Her fake ID happened to have the same birthday as me, um, so we went out for our respective her fake birthday, my real birthday. I took her to Rubicon, where Larry Stone. I am eternally grateful for that man for what he did. He, I gave him a phone call last minute. We walked in. He said, "I'm sorry, Jeremy. Um, it was short notice. I was not able to get you your usual table. This was the second time I'd ever been in his restaurant." But he just said that with a perfectly straight face. Sent some champagne our way. We drank Rumier 94 Chambon Village and a glass of Moirche 90 from Pierre Moret showed up from a neighboring table. And it turned out that Pierre Moret was sitting at that table with his importers. And um, so I thought you should have some. And Diana was very impressed by how incredibly swell. This was very different from the dates with the college guys she'd been with. And um, I must say it was not actually, um, it was a bit of misrepresentation on my part, but you know, all is fair in love and work. So. And you're, and you're married now, and, and she does the winemaking. You look after uh, sort of estate management. 
Yeah, we, well, we, we, both, we both share a lot of the duties because she's making wine in California for her family as well. Which is Snowden. It's Snowden, exactly. Um, not related to Edward Snowden. I got a lot of, of, of questions about this, um, including from Jancis Robinson, who I check. But um, I'm sort of disappointed, actually. But um, anyway, the, so she sometimes has to take off before we finished a harvest, or, or in this case, this year, uh, she finishes before we start. But, um, but most years, she takes off somewhere towards the end of the ferments, and, and we see that. But we're, we're pretty interchangeable. Between my brother Alec and Dinah, we all, um, we all can cover for each other for most things. I'm, I, don't, I don't know how to use her lab equipment to do the analyses, but, I, but you know, analyses can always, you can always send them out to a lab. Um, she, you know, she, she follows the barrels, barrel by barrel over the malolactics and gives me the results. But if I have to do that, I can. So if she needs to take time off for her family's project, she can. And vice versa, when, I'm, when sometimes I'm, I happen to be traveling, then she can take some decisions without me. And it's been very good in terms of... Um, because working, as I said, with your family is not easy. But Alec, Dinah, and, and my father and I, when we, um, when we taste together and we look at a wine and during fermentation, for instance, does it need another punch down? Most of the time, I mean, I'd say nine out of ten times, we're completely, we don't even need to say it. We, we, we understand, we, we both see eye to eye on that, and we, we all see eye to eye on that, and, and, take, and take the same decision. There's not someone who's dying to do extended cold soaks and very extracted wines while the others are pushing the other direction. There's, there's none, none of that. And one of the things that's interesting about you is that before you got involved with hands-on winemaking, you were doing some some wine sales in the market, working for an English uh, importer of French wine and also German wine. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like? For one, it was really fun to live in London because when I went back for that year in Dijon, having lived a very active student life in a student city and so on, it was going back to Dijon. It was a quiet, quiet country town. It's livened up a bit, but the former mayor had declared that terraces needed to be closed at 8 p.m. So I mean, there's no drinking on a terrace in summer after 8 p.m. It's just, it was, it was ridiculously quiet. And I was really missing life. When you're 21, 22, you, you want just a little bit more to go on. And living in Moray, you only meet so many people. You meet the people who come to taste. That's about it. And, um, and so I was ready to stay away a little bit longer. And, um, and so I went, working in London was, was really interesting. For what was my first, my first job, my first real job, I was paying my way through life out of my own paycheck, which was really good. Um, it was also, I knew, the, I was familiar with the wines from the portfolio. It was a good portfolio for me to work with. They were very focused on, on well, Otto Loeb was a, an exporter for, of Riesling based in Trier. And, um, and in the 30s, being Jewish, he saw the wind turn and decided it would be much smarter to be an importer based in London than an exporter based in Germany. I think that was a, a history proved that decision to be a, a wise one. The, um, so I, I loved German reasoning already, but I hadn't had a chance to really, I'd been to one visit in Germany. This gave me a chance to do more. It gave me a chance to work with a lot of the wines. I mean, they represented Prum, uh, Tanish, one of the Hogs, not, not Fritz Hogg, the other, uh, Willy Hogg. They represented uh, Egon Müller. Anyway, it was, it was just a, a great portfolio. They were the historical, in, in regional France, the historical importer for Rias, for Ramonet, for D'Angerville, for Rousseau, for Faux in, in the Loire. And, and so they, it was just great wines to work with. And we visited those wine regions a few times, part of the, every year you go taste the, the next vintage. And also I was working a lot with restaurants. 
And the, you know, being a winemaker from a winemaking family, at least I had a foot in the door. I had a lot of sommeliers who were willing to meet me. But I realized that, um, A, sommeliers are really unreliable when it comes to appointments. Um, that, um, that just because they say something is good doesn't mean they're going to buy it. I mean, it's just, I was very naive about the whole thing. And that some things might be good, but make no sense on certain lenders, for instance. And so I... Being confronted from reality for real, with reality as a winemaker is a really sound thing. Just because you make a good wine does not mean that wine is ever going to move on the market. And you need it. Well, you need, I feel as a winemaker, it's important to make the wines you like and you love. But it's also important to go and show and explain what you're doing in the market. It's important to understand that the market there's going to be some resistance on some things, and there's only so much room for, for instance, hand selling uh, versus some things that in, in, in England, the big move, moving category wine is Chablis. The English drink Chablis as if, um, as if it was going out of style, which I don't think it is. It was unbelievable, the volume of Chablis that was. So it was just, okay, the Chablis, how do we keep it in stock? And the other wines were just, let's see what we can interest people in. It was also really interesting because I realized that the Burgundy drinkers that I was meeting at the time, so I was 23, and yeah, the Burgundies I was meeting was like um, the joke about the, Cad yeah, the Cadillac dealership. They were between 65 and dead. That was their client base. And um, it was time to, um, that really pushed me towards starting the Dujac Fissepère because at the time, um, I Which wanted- Which is the negotiation. Exactly, the negotiation operation. I decided to focus on village. Because, I mean, exchange rates were different at the time, you've got to realize, and price of grapes and so on. But nonetheless, I felt that that was a level where we could compete with a varietal Pinot Noirs from other areas. And where really, well, great restaurants could afford to still do it by the glass. And, I mean, now there's some incredible things being offered by the glass, and the Corvin is going to change that again. But uh, somebody who's willing to take a risk and push something was going to be able to turn young drinkers onto Burgundy. I, that's my, my hope and dream at the time, um, because they would be willing to take that risk. If you're looking at a $500 bottle of wine, the guy does, doesn't think he likes it. There's, it's never going to work. If you just want to try one glass of this and it's on the house, if you don't like it, then the guy can, or the guy or the girl or whatever, they can, they can certainly, um, take those risks. And I, and I, and I, and I felt like with, at village level was where we had consistency. We could offer three different village wines. They would you know, be able to open a conversation about the differences of terroir, the, the, what it might mean, Gevray versus Moray versus Chambol. If people wanted to age them a little bit, I think that they, they've got the potential to go an easy 10 years. And so you can also look at, at, at more mature examples further down the line. So it was a, a project that made sense. It was very much... Um, the result of my experience of being in the market in England, where I felt like we needed to um, make Burgundy a little more exciting to, to, to young people. So you worked with producers like Reyes and other producers in Burgundy. Did you get a chance to visit some of those producers? And yeah, yeah. I, uh, no, the, the, the Burgundian producers, I, I visited all of them. Um, and their Rhone portfolio, I visited all of those, all of those people, including Reyes. And the first visit at Reyes, I mean, just the visits at Reyes are were always memorable because it was just, unfortunately, it was just after Jacques Renault had died. So it was their first vintages of, of Emmanuel Renault. And, um, you know, it is a filthy, filthy cellar. And um, it's notoriously so, or it was notoriously so. It's, it's improved. I mean, it's improved. It's, it's gotten cleaner, which one could certainly note as an improvement. But the first time I went, there was an open bottle of Australian Shiraz on a shelf with some wine left in a glass as well next to it. And we went back a year later and was still there. 
and there was still with mother of vinegar on top of the bottle and a dry caking of red wine on the glass. And the third year was still there. I've been since and it has been moved now. But this was the way, there was a barrel that had fallen apart because it hadn't been filled in a while, so it had dried out and fallen apart. And it was essentially composting in the barrel alley. And yet, and the, the, the pipette, the wine thief, was this old plastic thing that was just, um, you know how plastic stains like old Tupperware? This was really stained with, with, uh, with the red, with the, with the Grenache, I guess, mostly. And, but there was also the Foncelette wines in there. And, um, and he would draw, he would use this pipette on the white wine, and he would draw the wine out. And you're looking at this really unsavory looking wine thief. And he would put it into glass, and out of this wine thief would come beautifully clear wine, and Foncelet and Rias White are special, special wines. And it really, it's that magic of wine. You know, there's, the, there you have the, there's these moments or something where just all of a sudden you think we're going to be all right. And, and it's, it was that type of tasting because you really felt inspired and you realized just how low-tech wine can be, and, and yet it can be so great. And so it really dry, drove home that less is more. If you've got a place that's special, and Rias really is a special place, then don't overthink it. Don't overwork it. Don't just let the specialness come out because it does. And, and that was, I, I, I don't know, that was a visit of note for sure. So let's talk about your own holdings, and because and, you do have several special vineyards of your own. So there was an acquisition of vineyards in 2005, which gave you significant Premier Cru and Grand Cru holdings that you did not have before. Yeah. What is the territory of the estate today? How should I understand it? So we're, we, we, we're farming because we don't own everything directly, but um, we can label domain anything that has a long-term lease as well. So we're farming 15 and a half hectares on 17 different, we make 17 different wines, three whites and, and uh, then 14 reds. So it's, I mean, it's, it's a lot of different wines. Um, not, a lot of them are in tiny quantities. I mean, my Bourgogne Blanc this year was one barrel. I think that was the smallest lot in the cellar this year. So it's, it's not industrial, but nonetheless, it's one different wine to think about. And it's, it's really fun making that, that number of, of different wines, but sometimes I would appreciate just a little more concentration and uh, and slightly larger batches for some of the tiny vineyards. Um, a because it would be there's some satisfaction to making more of a wine that's good, but also because in the in the winery, as I mentioned, as a, a, a nice full tank is just easier to work. So you're uh... so we're centered we're centered around Moray. That's where the historical vineyards are. That's. Yeah, it's, it's, it's where the, still the bulk of the vineyards are, but we go as far north as Gevray, and and in Gevray we don't go to the north side of Gevray. We buy some fruit from the north side, but and we go as far south as Vaune and the, the, the Nuit Saint Georges border. And I've started buying a bit of fruit in Nuit Saint Georges and Premier Cru, but um, I wanted to keep it close, especially for because it, when we bought the the Moyard estate in two thousand five, and I have some regrets for not having kept some of the Nuit Saint Georges Premier Cru au Torre. I made a wine from in 2005 that um, we made a wine, and it turned out really well. And I didn't think Nuit Saint-Georges would obviously fit with our style. And the way the access to that vineyard works, it's 45 minutes by tractor. And I was thinking, if our team's already flat out and working hard, and if when you need to go spray, you're going to spend 45 minutes each way getting there and back, it's going to... Are you going to really be serene in your decision-making? Or are you going to try cutting corners? And I thought we'd probably not be as comfortable with it. I think now our team is more mature. 
Um, we have one extra person. We have an extra tractor driver. We could we could do it. We could have done it. I think we could have done it, and we could have done it well. So now I'm, I'm more open-minded if something were to present itself. But um, I think there is value to keeping it close to to the estate. It's um, there's there's need to develop an intimacy with your vineyards to really do. I feel uh, uh, to really. Do, uh, give them their due and do their and and do justice to some of the amazing vineyards that are. I mean, when when I know it's it's uh, even Chambertin or Echezo get short uh, short uh, short shrift because um, it's not perhaps a perfectly delimited whole uh, terroir and there's less good parts. But nonetheless, you're looking at a pretty special place in the world to grow Pinot Noir, even in, with those without talking about the very top Grand Crus that are. <clears throat> It's amazing to, to grow grapes there and to make wine. It's, it's you just. It's um, it makes you feel smarter and clever and more talented than you are, because you realize that actually the 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 better the vineyard, the better the vine, the easier it is. The less you need to do as a winemaker, which goes back to that Rias con, uh, talk we were having, and it's it's. Um, there's always a temptation to make to do more, and I think that's we're fortunate because we have quite a lot of Grand Cru on, on Dujac. It's certainly not representative of all of Burgundy. So some people who don't have much or who only have one or who get access to one for the first time, there's this there's sometimes this temptation. Oh, I've got to extract this more. I've got to make it bigger wine. I've got to I've got to put more new oak on it. And and it, yes, it can take more new oak, and you can. But the question should never be can you. It's, the, the question is more should you, and. And so when you get into those those vineyards, it's a question of dosage and of letting things speak for themselves and of not doing too much and resisting the temptation because you, the first year we made Romain um, Saint-Vivant was, so 2005, it was a small tank and I didn't have much experience with small tanks and I was very concerned about the fermentation temperatures and getting it getting it through fermentation and pack, I like passing a peak at 30 degrees around at a certain density around 1030 density or being at 30 degrees I feel you get extra more purity if you go through that the, the big tanks do this quite naturally but the small tanks it was not so of course I heated it and of course I overheated it and um, and then the, the yeast stopped and so there I was with my sweet um, 9% um, which let me tell you is not a proud moment <laughs> and is a uh, Especially as, as as we're renting the vineyard, we're going to be paying the lease and wine, and uh, and the the owner is is, is is fairly well known in the world of wine and has an opinion that people hear. So, he, yeah, I, I was feeling really, really pretty, uh, pretty uh, anxious and sorry for myself. And uh, and it's the marvel of those. I'm sure if I'd done the same thing with Village or Bourgogne Rouge, it would have stuck or it would have developed horrible bread or VA or whatever. And there, no, it just very naturally started fermenting again. It took it took a three day break from fermentation, resumed. It never got hard. It never got weird. It it actually turned out really well. It was I mean, it was 2005 vintage is not um, even within the context of vintage. It turned out really well, and it just shows the forgiving nature of these great vineyards. And there's, yeah, you need to do less. You don't you don't need to work as hard, which is part of the unfairness of the, the whole thing. It's just when people talk terroir and when the conversation is going on in, in California about great vineyards and other, yes, this is different from this. This is, yes, okay, I can understand how vineyard A and vineyard B are different. And perhaps one is a little better than the other or one is much better than the other. But there is need, it's not just about them being different. It's There is there's a hierarchy. And the hierarchy in the Appalachian system is an important thing. And the, um, 
you can't, and, and it's not enough to be different. What makes Cru's great and standalones, and the reason they aren't blended with others, is they make a complete wine. They make a wine that doesn't have gaps or holes. They might be different in character. One is silkier, one is more perfumed, one is more floral, whatever that the difference may be. But you don't think, ooh, I should blend the Romain Saint-Vivant with a Tosh, and I would then end up with... No, they make a complete picture. There's no gaps, there's no holes. It's a great wine. It stands alone. The village, the village uh, uh, holdings, um, vineyards, Moray is pretty compact. But in the Fissepère uh, uh, range, I, ha- I get Chambal from, I think, five different locations. Um, I have to enumerate them. But anyway... And I, I really can see how some locations provide a certain quality and others a different quality and how the two are better together. And that's, they should not just be separated because they're different. There's a temptation. You can say, well, this is not like this is. And so I've got two different individuals. Yes, but if they're better blended at village level, I think they should be. And that's, I mean, there's, there's uh, exceptions. There's colleagues who feel differently. And this is the joy of, and the complexity of Burgundy. Simple, varietally, but, um, but when it comes to, everyone gets to do their own thing, and that's pretty cool. But I do think that village wines, they're lower on the, on the hierarchy, and that's where, where blending within a village is, c- constructs a better identity of that village. So one of the things that's <clears throat> kind of interesting to me about Dujac is that you are a, a really based in Moray, and you have some strong holdings in uh, Moray Grand Cruz. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, for me personally, I've always found Moray to be one of the more difficult communes to kind of get a handle on. For me, I have a really clear picture in my mind of what I think about Gevray. I have a really clear picture in my mind about what I think about Chambol. Mm-hmm. How should I be thinking, or what, what are the handles for me to better understand Moray? Well, Moray is a much smaller um, acreage than those other two village population-wise. It's bigger than, it's bigger than Chambol, but much smaller than Gevray. But in terms of the, there's just much more Gevray that's made. And there's more growers in, in Gevray. I think you you see more than you do more. More is, I think, 60 hectares of village. I think Gevray is 350. So it's I mean, just of the village. So that's a real difference. On the other hand, for me, there's four different Gevrays. I've, I've been buying grapes there now for, for 13 years and uh, 14 vintages. And the... Um, the north side, the south side, the, the east and west are, are very different in Gevray. In Moray, with 60 hectares, there's a unity of character that's really pretty consistent, with the exception of the, the little bit of village that's above the Grand Cruz. But the bulk is beneath, and, and that's, that's, uh, there's, a, there's unity. I, I taste wine very texturally, so I, and which is not easy to describe, but um, Moray, for me, has um, it's, it's a wine that has tannin, but it's not as stern as Gevray is, for instance, nor as silky as, as Chambal might be. But there's a real warmth. And I don't know, there's a real warmth to the tannins. There, there's tannin, but it's not, it's not austere. And I don't know how that quite works. There's just tannic, but not austere. But, it, but that's how, that's how I, I, I sense it. And um, there's, um, tannins can be on the edge of rustic. And I suppose it's that, that, that maybe a rustic appeal that maybe, or maybe it's just because it's home and that's what I grew up with. It's very hard for me to sometimes differentiate that. Then there's a spice to Moray. For me, Gevray, I never think of as a, as a spicy wine and Chambal, not particularly. Moray, there's a sort of musk, wild, sort of feral quality to it, which I think is pretty consistent across different styles of growers. 
because in terms of winemaking approach between us and Clotel or between us and Ponceau, there's very, very different approaches to winemaking and the wines are very different, but that's, that's something that I would find is recurrent. And then in the red fruit character or the fruit character, I find Moray leans towards the cherry strawberry and is closer to Gevray and that's how Chambon is much more raspberry uh, in my, in my mind. How else would be, what else would be characteristics? I, mean, I think that's, yeah, there's a spice character, which is, um, Vaughn is spicy, but Vaughn is really oriental market spicy. It feels doubly exotic in terms of its for, uh, spice character. Moray is, you know, cinnamon, nutmeg. They're familiar to everyone's spices, which is possibly, which explains some of the warmth or the, there's something familiar about it when you taste it, maybe. And speaking of Vaughn, <clears throat> I, I was walking through Malkinsor earlier this year and they pointed out where the Dujac parcel was, and that seemed like a pretty big parcel in comparison to the other parcels of Malconsor. Yeah, we have 1.57 hectares, and the total of Malconsor is 6.5. So it's uh, where I think Bichot has more than us, um, than is us, than De Monti, and there's only so many growers in Malconsor. So afterwards, you've got um, Katia, Udlo Noela, and that's it, I think. I might be forgetting. I don't think I'm forgetting anyone, no. So how would you define uh, Malconsor as you seem to have quite a bit of it uh, in relation to not just Malconsor, but also your other holdings? It's a vineyard uh, as much when we bought, so the uh, the things we added to uh, to, uh, to the stable, as it were, to the to our vineyards, our holdings, were Malconsor, Vaughan-Beaumont, we already made a little bit, but I, I we made so little and... Uh, the vines were young that I didn't feel we had a good understanding of, or we weren't done, we were not producing a great example of that vineyard. There are some, we've got a little bit of Bonne Mar that went into the Bonne Mar tank and that I think added nicely to it. And that was, that was easy to integrate as it were. Some Chambertin, actually Chambertin and Chambertin Claude Bez, but when you blend them, they become just Chambertin and, uh, and some Romain et Saint-Vivant. So those are the, the last ones are really pretty small areas. I'm someone who tends to function by benchmarks. I, um, I, you know, tasting a great Romain Saint-Vivant is pretty easy to find, and uh, just a question of money. But it's uh, but it's you get to t- you get to try something, and you get to say, oh wow, I get <clears throat> I get what Romain Saint-Vivant is can be. I understand the character. Chambertin was the same, and and all the other vineyards. There was, you know, Romain Saint-Vivant. Our winemaking and DRCs. Obviously, we're making different wines. We're, we're different domains, but nonetheless, there's at least. Some overlap, and I can I relate to their wines quite easily. For Malconsor, the great Malconsor producer is Katia, and his winemaking approach is really very diff- different from ours. And I could not, I had no sense of how high that wine can go, um, could go. And I still think we haven't fully reached the heights, and the potential is enormous. I feel in that vineyard, we needed initially to. It was farmed. It was he- pretty heavily fertilized. It was um, there were herbicides that were used at that stage. We were full organic on the demand, and we moved it to organic quickly. But you know, vineyard work is is long term. You've got to think about things for the very long term. So the first year things improve a little bit because you bring a little extra rigor. And I do feel that our farming is very good. And um, and then as time goes by, that that starts paying off. So I feel like we're still on a progression curve with with Malconsa as everything we've put in place starts to be increasingly reflected in the, in the, in the, in the wines. So, you know, I, I looked, of course, uh, envy, with envy and uh, to, the, to our neighbor to the north, Latache, and, uh, and our, 
On right Gonsal, we have some in the upper slope that actually is adjacent to, well, uh, we have that little sliver that's Les Godichaux Premier Cru is, is ours, which uh, the Moyal always put into Malconsal, and we decide to keep doing that. The vines are fairly young. I don't, I don't want to make it separately, maybe one day, but um, at this stage, I think it makes sense to blend in. Part of what I thought makes, what I think makes Latache as complete a wine is a bit like Bonnemar, the best example, I think, are the best examples have that uh, red soil, white soil. It's a, it's a two, two geological type of soils go into Bonnemar. The same is, is true of Latache. It's not as striking because the color difference in Bonnemar is striking and, you, and you, it's very easy to see for everyone visual. But if you go up, walk Latache top to bottom, you go through several different types of soil. And I, I was keen when we were splitting the, the medical cell with Etienne that we should both have some of the top and some of the bottom. And I, I was intent on blending them from the start. The, the bottom seems to bring a little more breadth, earthiness, a bit like the red soles of Bud Mao, um, a, a certain power. But and the top, on the other hand, plays more in the mineral austerity and tension. And so the two together um, make, I think, a, a better wine and, and a more full picture of a wine. And so that's one of those cases where you could, you know, you could make two wines and say, well, yeah, but they're different. And um, and that. That has its interest, but is it better? And I also didn't like the idea of the fact that there might be one, one Malconcel that was the special Malconcel and the other one was the regular Malconcel. And the idea of regular Malconcel is just, no, is, there's no such thing as regular greatness. So it's, it's, um, it, it didn't, it, I didn't want to do that. Malconcel seems to have a, a breadth, opulence, and power combined with a complexity with, which is more Grand Cru than, than Premier Cru. For me, the, the Premier Cru is rarely put everything together the way Malconsort does. But, you know, it's one of the few wines where 06 was better than 05. I feel like 08 is better than 06, 10 is better than 08, and 12 is probably better than 10. Every two years, we ratchet things up a little bit. I, and this is my general feeling. So I'm curious to see how, how this will, um, where this will go over my, over my life. Um, it still feels like the road is still long, and it will be good to see mature examples because... Your imagination is uh, is is, uh, is titillated by the young wines, but you you want one day to have that great old wine to really validate your your beliefs or your faith in in a place and a vineyard. Interestingly, you also make some white uh, from Cote de communes. Mm. What, what is that like? Well, barring my barrel of Bourgogne Blanc, which we, which is in the bottom of Moray, um, and which. Um, which we can skip over. Um, I have some Moissani Blanc, which is at the bottom of our block of Moissani, so just above the um, former RN74, now D974. Wondering if the restaurant's going to end up renamed. Well, I don't think so. Um, and uh, and so that's that's in the bottom. That's in quite deep soils. It was a pragmatic decision. The, the, the road over centuries, because it was a Roman road once upon a time, has grown up, has, has gone higher and higher. They pile one road onto the former road. And, and so it's created a little frost pocket at the bottom there. And for red, if you get frost and you get two generations of grapes in one same area, it, it's very, very hard to sort out harvest. And my father felt that this was much easier to manage as a white, as a white wine. So he planted some Chardonnay there in well, 84 and 86 was the two years the, 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 those grapes, those vines were planted. And that makes one style of wine. I'll come back on the style. And the other, the other planting we, uh, we got in... 97, we replanted in 97 because it was planted in red, and the first vintage was 2000. That's Montrison, and that's above Claude Laroche. Montrison is a climat that overlaps village, premier cru, grand cru, when it's grand cru, Montrison. We have some in our, it becomes Claude Laroche, and, and we have some in our Claude Laroche. It's where 
Domaine Hubert Lignier, uh, Romain Lignier has his collage as well. Anyway, and just above that, we have Moray Premier Cru, uh, which we planted to white Montluisan. So it's adjacent to Ponceau's um, Claude et Montluisan. And he, I've, I've asked him since because I was getting varying answers and I get the question very often. What his blend is at this stage pure aligoté. It was once a blend of aligoté Chardonnay Pinot Blanc, as in the Gouge Pinot Blanc, which is a special mutation found in the Gouge vineyard. But the um, Ours is pure Chardonnay. And it's a very steep slope. It's 45 degree slope, for which by, it's not the Mosul, but it's uh, for Burgundy, it's steep. And it's full east. And that, um, the result of that, and you're high up on the hill, um, you get that little bit more altitude. You get very intense sunshine right with that slope right from the beginning of the day. Uh, rising sun just heats up fast, ripens very well, and, and, um, and stays very healthy because it's very gravelly soil. On the other hand, when the sun sets, it's the first vineyard to be in the shade, and it cools with altitude right down. And so that makes a bigger diurnal shift, I think, than further down the slope, which is why it's premier cru rather than grand cru, among other reasons. The, um, the result in that is that it, while the sugars go high, the, the pHs or the acidities stay super high. The pHs stay very low. I mean, I, I get respect from Champenois and Riesling producers from the czar on, on our pHs there. I tell them the numbers. I'm like, ooh, that is high acidity. Um, I'm regularly under 3 pH. And, and in 13 I'm, and, and, uh, and 12, we were around 2.85 pH, which is really low, which creates a set of, of complexities. But it's an intensely mineral wine. In my aesthetic and my inclination, I don't especially like buttery Chardonnay, and it's never going to be a really opulent wine. So for a while, I was picking it really quite late and quite ripe, even though the city stayed very high. But then going through Mallow proved a nightmare, and the 14% Chardonnay was really not what I felt like producing. I did it a few times, but it's not, um, it's not my ideal. So I treat it in, in a slightly Chablisian way. It's, it's, uh, I put one new barrel every year. In the, normally, it produces about 12 barrels. Um, this year we produced five and a half, or five actually, now that we've topped up. But anyway, so I... This year being 2013. 2013, exactly. Yes, we, so the year has changed. But this vintage, and, um, and it's, it spends a... So the first year it spends in barrel, the second year it spends in concrete, or the second winter it spends in concrete eggs. The idea really being to go with very little visible oak and express that intense min- minerality and, and embrace it. So it's a wine for people who like who like Chablis, who like, um, who like wines that uh, challenge and hurt a little bit. Um, you've got, a, you've, it's, it's perhaps, it's a, it's a wine for the anti-flavor wine elite. It's, um, it's not, not, for the, not for the lovers of cream and butter. The Moray Village, on the other hand, is in a much deeper soil. It shows that characteristics, I find a lot of, of Cote de Nuit um, whites have a sort of fennel anise aromatic it is quite a lot broader and vinous. It's got that, I mean, you, when you try those wines that are on traditionally red um, wine-producing soils, you get a sort of savoriness, and, and you, you very, very rarely go into the floral direction. You stay more in that um, earth, fennel, as I said, anise, kind of root vegetables as well. I'm, I vinify it, and I make it in a very similar way. It's, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're just no batonnage, very little new oak, it's quite different from our from our red wine making, where we, we actually use quite a lot of new oak for the reds, but for the whites, it's uh, it's a place where I just don't like it, and um, and I like it in some other people's wines, but not in ours. And uh, and so the batonnage, I'm not sure if it's a factor of lazy wine making, but I've certainly rationalized it just fine. I just I just think, well, 
just extend the élevage, and you don't need to do bétonnage, and that works fine. And these characters, they 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 crush the differences between the vineyards. So another reason not to do it. So I was, yeah, I was, I was pretty pleased with myself when I came up with that, I, that rationalization. Let's talk a little bit about the vineyard management. It seems to have been a little bit of a moving target over the years, uh, mm-hmm. both because of um, different vineyard managers and different ideas about how, how things should be handled in the vineyard. Uh, what is the history since you, your dad started? Well, um, you know, the, the 60s, 70s was um, and, and 50s were, were the chemical days. It was... Um, Erosion was an issue on some of this, uh, some of the slopes. How do you manage the vineyard if you're just going to do hand hoe everything? It's a ton of work, very expensive for wines that aren't that easy to sell at the time, and uh, very effective molecules that could, uh, with one spray, mean you never had to put the tractor again for to control the grass. And I think people didn't really, and it was sold as well. We were sold on it as just this is not going to be especially polluting because it's got a very short half-life and so on. Well, we know we're finding stuff in the water table um, everywhere in the world from stuff that was sprayed 50 years ago and is still somehow there, even though it had a half-life of six months, apparently. So I think there's much greater skepticism in Burgundy in general, but certainly in our household, there's huge skepticism about what is promised by the people who produce these things. And there's also more of an understanding of what happens in terms of soil chemistry. I mean, um, we work a lot with Claude Bourguignon, who's very eloquent on the topic. He's a, and his wife, Lydia, and actually his son, Emmanuel, came and did harvest with us two years ago in um, 2011, and is a, a very good friend of my brother Alex and of mine. And I think we've got much more consciousness of, of the fact that we aren't exploiting the land. We are stewards of the land, and we have to treat it as a very finite resource that once we've screwed it up, just the rebuilding or the reconstructing of a soil structure, of a soil ecosystem is not so simple. We're fortunate that actually they, they are somewhat forgiving, the, the great soils of Burgundy, because of that clay structure that is not that, there's a lot of clay, but it doesn't compact very much. Plus, it gets worked over. Every cold winter works the soil in a big way. But still, we were keen to, um, we were keen to move away from that system. People were looking at cover crops at the time in a way that you know push the vine- uh, push the roots deeper, um, control uh, well, control, um, bring down vigor generally, and bring down yields. So with young vines, this was definitely something that was of interest as we were re- replanting, as I mentioned um, at, at the time. So we started doing cover crops in the row, but we didn't we hadn't didn't yet have a solution for what's happening between each vine and around around the vine. So under the under the row, we were still using um, herbicides. And we wanted to move away from that, but we were waiting for some tractor equipment to be developed, and they were really perfecting it fast at the time. And when, and we also needed an extra tractor driver, and we needed to find the right person to be attentive because a hoe that goes between vines is great as long as it's going between vines. But if it's not adjusted properly, it's taking the grass out and the vines, and that's a <laughs> that's a problem. So, um, so in ninety eight. We moved to full uh, zero herbicides, and no regrets. I mean, it was a, it was a great thing to do, and you know, we 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 talked about going organic. The Anclod Lefebvre's trials about organic versus non-organic were were really compelling and really interesting. It really asked a lot of questions. That the the differences were striking, and um, and so that 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 certainly um, played around our mind. And, and it was, but you've got you've got to do it not because shouldn't do it because it's, it's you know because you're going to sell your wine more easily. I mean that's one reason, but you've got to do it when you're ready. These are things that are big decisions because it's like when you're on the trapeze and you're going to not that I've ever been on a trapeze, but I imagine and they're going to, now we're going to do it without the net. And 
you've got to be confident about your ability to um, to read the diseases in the vineyard. And I've realized that Lilian Robin, our vineyard manager since 2001, since Christophe Morin passed away, has a quality of observation that is rare. I mean, I, even when I look and talk to other colleagues and other such things, he sees, he sees things that other people don't see. He senses things that most people would not, would not see. So we, when he's, he talks about intuition, it's just, I don't think we need to spray this time because we haven't had the contaminations. There's some that's on hard data. We haven't had the contaminations. There's not been that much rain, blah, blah, blah. But there's also some, sometimes where he tells me, you know, I think I'm going to spray and cover us because I'm not feeling it. I think that we should, we should not take risks in this particular case. And intuition is really based on observation experience and, and observation that you don't even know you're making. It's not always conscious observation. I think it's informed by so many things. But his intuition is just, in a year like 2012, where we got hammered weather-wise, uh, mildew, powdery and downy mildew, oidium, and where a lot of people got overwhelmed, we seriously, our vineyards looked, the canopy was immaculate. And it was fine because Vignon took off on the right cadence at the beginning of the, har- of the, of the season, and he did not miss that first spray, which a lot of people decided to skip. And it was really inspired uh, because after that, I mean, disease epidemiology works exponentially once you have a lot of contamination inoculum out there you're just chasing it afterwards and so that's that's i mean that's that's one thing so in 2001 we decided to move organic and so christophe morin was uh t- did that first year and uh Dignan was his assistant and um and unfortunately after harvest christophe died in a motorbike crash and we decided to do an internal promotion of Lignon, which was he he's a year older than me so he's he was he was young at the time it's not easy because you have a bunch of vignerons who've been at the demand. We have some some people who've been working for us for 35 years, and they look at the young guy who gets promoted. It was not simple to manage, um, but he's validated that choice multiple times. He is respected by our team, and he's very respected even within within Burgundy, um, within the organic groups and converse, uh, conversations that go on, because he has that ability to just question things and to... Um, because when you're doing, we're doing organic and biodynamic, there's a number of things you're really doing on faith in, in uh, biodynamic. But the other thing about biodynamic is it leaves a lot of room to your interpretation, your intuition, your approach to it. And we, you, need to, you need to be fully invested in it. And in our case, um, with a vineyard manager, your vineyard manager has to believe and be fully invested in this. You can't force him to be. Uh, you have to have the right person. And Lilian is, is, is a... Fabulous on that front. He's um, he he uh, he takes. I think he takes the right decisions, but he also doesn't just do stuff because it might be fun. To, or just he he does it because there's a need. It's 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 a uh, it's a just if nothing needs to be done, nothing needs to be sprayed. Don't do it. And and with biomics, sometimes it's just you know I thought I think I'll throw a little teaser of this, a little teaser of that because. And you, you come up with some exotic interpretation or reasoning for it. But afterwards, you've just put a tractor through the vineyard for no reason at all, and you compacted your soil or whatever. It's not, it's not, you know, it has a, a good, broad picture view of the whole thing. And you told me once that Christoph, before he died, he was in the position of trying to make younger vines act like older vines in terms mm-hmm. of some of the plantings that he was dealing with. And, and what does that mean? So, old vines, I know she, uh, 
Steve Tanzer asked that question on his website not long ago. The, um, are old vines necessarily better? And no, it depends on what the quality of your selection. I forgot to answer that email. But um, the quality of your clonal or, or mesal selection, it depends on uh, if they've always been with herbicides, they might have only very superficial roots. What you tend to get with old vines, though, is, is as a whole, they produce less. They, they become a little less vigorous when they become... I mean, sometimes it takes 30 years to have that drop in vigor. Sometimes it takes 50 or 60 years. And then when you get, you, you frequently get a bit of virus in old vines, so you get those small shot berries, midahondage. Um, and, um, and that, other than bringing down your production, also makes for really great juice-to-skin ratios, um, a lot of skin, and, and you get a texture to old vines. G2012s, it's like everything was old vines because we had that poor flowering, so everything was midahondé. So you get that sort of intensity and juicy extra, extra, uh, slightly thicker texture, but you don't get the weight. And that's the wonderful thing about it. So very old vines, there's just this intensity of wine into it that, that comes there. And with young vines, they can make great wines. You, you, I mean, after they've turned 10, you, you, you usually already have very good sight expression and very good, um, the sense of place that terroir comes across. On the other hand, they're regular in terms of yields. They might produce a huge, a huge yield one year. The next year, they're a little tired because they went. So there's kind of start-stop sometimes to them. They because they're because they're more vigorous and produce more compact bunches because they're usually virus-free. You might get a bit more botrytis in them as well. So we were looking to calming down that vigor and to also forcing down the roots deeper into the soil. People say vines have to suffer. It's a common cliche in the wine business. I'll call it for what it is. It's total bullshit. Vines must not suffer. On the other hand, vines must work. Um, so they've got, they, you can't put them in a pool of water, nitrogen, phosphor, uh, phosphorus, and so on. They've got to go get it. And, they've got, and that's, that's where you get the best expression. So drought years where vines actually do suffer, usually the wines aren't that good. You frequently get the hard tannins because they didn't ripen properly because there was water stress or whatever. But a vine that works, so it was a question of trying to get them to push them in terms of, of work, is the, the making them behave like old vines. So cover crops have their role because they compete with the vine. If you have a cover crop that's too aggressive, you're going to stress that vine. But if you have the right cover crop, and it might take change because the first year it can take a very light competition, the second year it can take a little more. So we start with cover crops and then we let come back what wanted in terms of we became with, um, a much more eco, eco, broader ecosystem, richer ecosystem as, as natural weeds would come and repopulate the, the area. So that led to some competition and, and a drop in vigor. The other thing was changing the pruning system. We, we, we put a lot of double cordial. The, the spur pruning, because of its dispersal mechanism, the vine, the further it's away from, uh, from the foot of the vine and its roots, the more fertile those buds are. <clears throat> Which makes sense, as you can imagine, if a vine is growing on trees in a jungle and it wants to go, go forth and, and multiply uh, far away from itself. And... Um, and so the spurs, which are very close to the to the root, is a good way of dropping your vigor. It was also a good way of aerating the canopy and 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 doing away with having less botrytis pressure, things like that. So the the change in pruning system and the cover crops were two big things in terms of trying to get them to behave like old vines. You did a, a specific kind of trellising mm-hmm. to to sort of you know, affect what you were talking about. Exactly. So. For instance, the, the, the Chambre Chambertin, those were older vines. They were, they were planted in the 50s, but it was a really productive selection. And it was really, it was going for it. It was, it was, um, it was kind of, um, you know, you say ambitious in terms of the yields it was willing to put out. And there, the change in pruning and the cover crop 
it's gone from a and then and then the and then the organic because there's a shift. It's it's a it's a funny thing organic uh, viticulture I, or the organic biodynamic because it's really both. You you get more character out of your vineyards, which sounds like a great thing, but potentially, you know, it's warts and all. So sometimes a vineyard's shortcomings, if or shortcomings, something that can certainly be perceived as shortcomings, such as a really a, ten, a tendency towards big tannin, for instance. Well, you're going to see more of that, and it's going to exaggerate its features. And then sometimes it's the opposite. You just you realize that you didn't have the real character of the vineyard, and when you change the farming method, you just end up with a completely different character. So, for instance, our Echazo tended to be clunky and chunky tannic-wise, and uh, while at the same time lacking a little bit in depth. It has moved away from that and gone towards being one of the silkier wines in the cellar. And in the opposite direction, the Cham Chambertin, which was always light and, and pretty and, and charming, but at the same time, perhaps lacking a little bit of depth, it put more in the bottle, but it was not, it was not powerful. It has gone to be the most powerful wine in the cellar. And it's not because we work it differently in the wineries. We're not, we're not doing more to it. On the contrary, we sort of take the, 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 the foot off the pedal extraction-wise because very spontaneously it goes in that direction. But for, for all the other vineyards there, there was less of a shift of character than just a, a, a reinforcement of the character of those vines. But the, the, the Cham Chambertin, yeah, it's a, it's a radically different wine from what it used to be in the 90s. Um, it's kind of, kind of cool to, to witness. Something else you've done is you've started to do more Massal and less clones over the course of the estate. And you, you mm -hmm. take it from vines that you already have as a parcel that you like, it's a regular fruit set. And you, you so when my father came and, and started planting, um, and there's a lot of talk of Massal and clone, clonal bad, Massal good, which I think is, as always, things are more complicated than that. Um, there was a lot of, of virus in the, in the Burgundian vineyards. I mean, it was a disastrous amount of virus. And there was need to go and save the vineyards that were not showing those viruses or that did not have... Because actually, the, the more it goes, the more they're finding that there's way more viruses than they ever suspected. But at least you need to do away with the, vi the, the grape fan leaf, very virulent viruses uh, that were killing your production. It's the reason why people were, now people replant less. They replace the dead vines and those take. At the time, you would replant a dead vine and your soil was so full of virus because it's spread by nematodes. So there's, you would take out one dead vine or non-producing vine from grape fan leaf, and then you'd plant another, and then it would get contaminated by virus, and it would be virus by the time it produced its first fruit, if ever it did. And so you had to pull out the whole thing, rest the soil. And, and it was, I mean, resting the soil is still something that's important, and it's something that um, we all wish we could do more of, um, the DRC being the only demand that really can has the size of holdings and the financial means to you know let let, let, let a, a, a parcel go fallow for seven plus years. Which they're doing in Latache. Which they're doing in Latache. They've done in many Saint Vivants. It's admirable, but you know they they were leaving fallow something like something that's four times the size of what I have in in um, in, in many Saint Vivants. So I can't do it row by row, and I can't anyway. But um, the day it needs to be replanted, we'll see. But, um, so anyway, the clonal was necessary in that era. I think that now that um, another thing that people assume that if you plant clones 30 years later, you still have a clonal vineyard. Well, no, it's not how things work. You've got a sessile organism that's sitting one place and it's going to get bitten by bugs. It's going to have herbivores that are going to come and eat a few leaves. It's going to have nematodes that are going to come and, and, and bite its roots and so on. 
And, and plants, we know, exchange a ton of genetic material with their environment, and they're also highly reflective of their environment and the expression of that genetic material. So, you know, even in the first year, two clones, one planted with, you know, a rock right underneath it and one not, or one with some compaction in its hole and one not, you're going to get two very different individuals, even though genetically they should be identical twins. Um, so you've got the genotype, you know, the, the, which is your genetics, and the phenotype, which is the expression of those genetics. And so people are realizing that the phenotypical differences are really more important than was originally su suspected. And also what's strange is that actually there seems to be, um, Lamarck seems to have been less far from the mark, uh, terrible pun, um, than, uh, than, than was originally thought, and that <clears throat> there's a transmission of phenotype which is that if you've got a, a, the same clone growing in two different vineyards, you might have um, two different expressions or, or physical look appearance of that clone. You know, might one, um, on, on, less, um, on less rich soils, one might do more loose clusters or smaller clusters, another one big compact clusters because it's in a very fertile area. Well, when you take cuttings from those clones and move them out of that vineyard, for some reason, those characteristics are inherited. So now that only works so many generations, but it's reinforced a consciousness at least that there's um, interest or there's value in perhaps replanting, uh, taking from your own vineyards, from the vineyards you like best, the having a proprietary missile. And we now feel ripe for it. We have a, a better selection. We have a better... Um, we have a better selection. We have we have older vines, and, and we have a better sense, perhaps, of what's uh, what we want to select for. We also feel the need to to preserve, and it's a conservation effort as much as anything, including some selections. That was an idea launched by Frederick Munier, which I think is a very good idea. That before we pull out all our old, old vines, we should also take some cuttings from those vines and some genetic material without selecting. Uh, just eliminating the things that are obviously virus, but the things that are not, and just plant a few rows in our new replants so that we have that genetic material so that, for instance, if we want, up till now, you know, clonal selection went for early ripening stuff because ripeness was a challenge. Now, going forward, perhaps it'll be the reverse. We'll need late ripening Pinot, and we might lose that genetic diversity. As I said, some of it is carried in the soil and the, and the environment, and so I feel like we'll always have a lot of, of diversity and Pinot Noir is not terribly stable genetically. Um, so that yields its own diversity. On the other hand, we mustn't lose all our old vines and, and some of the random aspect of, of, um, of the old vines. So we're, we're, we're working on this conservatory as part of a group of 50 domains. And we're starting, you know, we're seven years in the selection process and we feel we've got another three before we really start launching our missile, pooling together our missile resources. But it's been a very interesting project. And, um, you know, not, there's not that many projects that you do that take 10 years before you see the results. And, um, and it's kind of nice to be over halfway through. With the Elevage at, at Dujac, <clears throat> I think the standard gloss is, is usually, well, Jacques was influenced by his friendship with Aubert Duvalet. He decided to do 100% stems and 100% new oak. And then uh, you came along and changed that. So that's the simplistic view. Mm -hmm. What really happened? What was the reality of this? Um, so yeah, my 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 father's a, when he likes something, he tends to um, yes, no. You know, it's, 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 it's not. It, it, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that. But yes, he he was fairly binary. So coming from the outside and looking at Burgundy, there's a certain 
there's a certain idealism and there's definitely never that view that you know, that gets carried through sometimes that Pinot Noir needs to be improved color-wise by blending. And so there were some, you know, there were some practices that were properly reprehensible. Some people got um, got sued and lost um, about and lost whole negoses disappeared um, in the wake of some of these scandals of blending. And um, and when he came from the outside, it was just his, some of the best wines he'd had had been unbelievably pale. He said they were just like, they were like rosé. <laughs> and I, I can imagine that Pinot Noir in the 30s, 40s, uh, produced in those, that era, some of them were bound to be pretty light in color. He said that the perfume was incredible. And I never really cared about the color that much. I cared about what it smelled like and tasted like. So he went, <clears throat> that, that led to, as a whole, very light extractions in the winery. The benchmark was Domaine de Romain Conti, and, um, and they were 100% whole cluster, and he thought, why would I not do the same? Uh, Gérard Potel was also a big whole cluster user in Volnay, and um, you know, this was the first thing he did, and, and it worked, and people liked it, and it, and it, and, and it stood out. And there's, you know, I, I, when I was a kid, I would hear it all the time. I, hear, I still hear it, but less. I think, oh, the, the Dujac wines are the first ones I recognize blind in a lineup. There was a very strong house style. And I think that served him very well and served us very well and served the demand very well for a long time. Because, because rec- being recognizable is, is ultimately a good thing. And if people like the style you're doing and it's not everywhere else, then, then that's something good. But of course, our dream as a winemaker who's are dealing with great terroir is to, to have our winemaking disappear um, behind the terroir. And I felt like our style was a little heavy-handed. Now, my father did destem heavily in some vintages, like 91. He destemmed heavily. If the vintage conditions were, he felt required it, then he would destem. 2000, which I think is a very Dujac, uh, our wines are, are very Dujac, as it were. They're very recognizable as such. That was almost everything was 100% destem. So it's, it, it doesn't rotate just around the whole cluster, uh, the whole cluster fermentation, but it's a large component. As I said, that's one of the big decisions you can take, but your cooperage is another big decision you can make. Um, Timing of mallow is another big one. And then there's a lot of small things. I wanted, as as our vines grew older, I felt they extracted more easily. I think that's, I think that's definitely true. You know, the, the grapes we get are not the same as, as the grapes we were getting in the 90s and the 2000s. With, as, the grape, as the vines grow mature, everything extracts more easily. There's more tannin that's there. The wines are... So we, I'm actually punching down much less than my father did. I think most people would consider the wines that we're making currently are more tannic than the wines we made in the 80s or 90s. And that's not a factor of being more extractive. That's a, it's, it's a factor of the grapes being more extractable. And so I felt like I could really uh, have the terroir show better by just nuancing the winemaking a little bit. I did not want to do a revolution. The wines my father made were good, and there was no need to change everything. On the other hand, slight evolution was, was I felt, necessary or desirable. And so I feel like by destemming 10 15%, you already move away from the whole cluster character. You still have some, but it's not your defining feature. Um, same on the oak. For the village, a lot of the village wines for me tasted too oaky. So I've dropped it. We dropped it 50% in the mid 90s. And that was Christophe Morin's impulse. But I dropped it further. And so now we're about 30%. And I think 25 would make sense. The, the Premier Cruz and Grand Cru still get pretty high percentages. But again, I've dropped it a little bit. I feel like there's a little bit more transparency that way. But the fact is, about the winemaker dis- disappearing behind the terroir 
it's a it's a wonderful ideal to strive for, but you're defined as much by new oak as by absence of new oak. People who do zero percent new oak, I mean, or even very low percentage of new oak, I can I can smell the old oak in those wines. There's a there's a slight dustiness, and so which is why which is why we we look when we were looking at Coopers and did our trials and that sort of thing, we're looking for a new barrel that doesn't make the wine taste of oak. So it's ridiculous. It's like buying uh, expensive clothes that look cheap or something like that. I don't know. But it's, I feel like at its best, new oak, it doesn't taste like oak. It just brightens things in the, in the, in the flavors. You feel like you have a, in your fruit character and your, in your, the purity of that fruit and the brightness and sharpness of the image almost. If you've got an olfactory image, it feels sharper if you have a bit more new barrels. And if you have old, old oak, Somehow things come out. They're, they're, it's, you can still make great wines, and I've, I've got plenty of colleagues whose wines I adore that are made in old oak. But I feel like you have perhaps something that there's just a, it's like matte versus shiny or something like that. And I kind of want it shiny, so at least for our wine. You decided on Allier. Is that true? Um, we're more dependent on um, on one. We work with one stave maker, and he sources from several different. Uh, forests, but we have a style. He he he's drawn to a style of tree, and and he knows what works. At this stage, we've got enough of a track record with him because we've been working for thirty years now. That he knows what works for us, and so he gives us the same as last year. You know, <laughs> thirty years down the line, I want the same thing as last year or the first year, or whatever. So he, it's a full. I have heard of winemakers going to the forest and looking to select their trees and so on. I did that forest visit. Um, a couple times now, and I looked at trees, and I realized that this was potentially a lifetime learning job, and I was going to be uh, humble enough to recognize that this would never fit within, I would never reach that degree of expertise. And I, what I needed to do was find an expert and an honest expert who was going to guide me through this, um, because you go and there's a tree, tree. this one's, well, it's the same tree, it looks the same as this one. Oh yeah, but this one's growing by the path. So that half of the tree that's next to the path, less competition, less tight grain. The, the, this half of the tree, and that one over there, you don't see anything. Oh, it's been it's been pecked at by a caterpillar. It's bored it some holes, so that's probably going to go halfway up the tree, and you can't use that. That'll be anyway. So it's 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 uh, again that level of observation we were talking about earlier. What would you see as the sort of milestone vintages for Dujac and why? Whether hmm. that's a good milestone or a learning milestone or. 69, the first, I know the, the vineyard, the vintage, vintage that put my father's under the men on the map. I feel like 78 is a reference point. It was the best vintage since 69. It's still, it's still great. The 69s are good, but um, the fills are getting a little lower and they've become more, much more variable. But the 78s I still have with some regularity. And um, it, it sort of defines. It's it's a it's a good example of what I consider great Burgundy in terms of incredible perfume and weightlessness. Eighty five for that sweetness and it's the most charming vintage. And then in the nineties it becomes trickier because there are so many good vintages and we don't in the family we don't all agree about which ones we like. Ninety is good, but I think it's an overrated vintage. But I don't think it's now. It's sorry, it's overrated within some people, and it's it's underrated by others who call it too porty, too jammy. The wines are not systematically porty. It's very dependent on producer and on 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 wines. We definitely we made nineties that are very much on the lighter side of the vintage, and um, my criticism, if anything, is that they're a bit too light. The um, 
Um, 93, my brother Alec doesn't especially like. He feels that there's a torrified coffee note to a lot of the wines. I, I really like 93. And I feel like we've had some, we have, we've had recently some vintages that are really reminiscent of 93. As I mentioned, my first vintage was 94. So I was trying the 93s out of barrel. And so it's the first vintage I followed from almost from conception. 95 is a vintage I like a lot. I feel like my dad took a lot of the right decisions in terms of level of extraction. And I feel like they're finally coming around. That one I saw right from the start. It was the first, at the time I was giving barrel tastings during the holidays to, to people who'd visit. And it was the most charming uh, wines out of barrel. And we bottled them and it was just incomprehensible. Where did all that charm go? Where did, where's the love? And, um, but the fact is, you know, you've got you've to believe and you've got to say, I think that um, what was once there is perhaps just muted by the bottling process and we'll come back. And I feel like it is coming back. It's a vintage, not of high ripeness. It's very reminiscent of 93, I find. There's a sort of concentration and energy to the wines. But there are some wines in 95 that are, and ours are starting to come back. And I think that we make wines, or my father made wines certainly that were more forward than most. And so I feel like ours are just starting to come back, which means that a number of producers and friends I know, they're still a good 10 years from starting to. Um, now, um, the big debate, in the, or the big debate with my father was about 97 versus 98. My father loves 97. And it's just, he said, it may not be the best wines I've ever made, but this is the kind of wine I love and I enjoy them so much and it's got everything I like. And so this is, this is a vintage for me. And he, he, he put quite a lot in the cellar for us. And, and he, whenever he goes down to the, for, for, for a few years, whenever he's going down to the cellar and he'd bring up a bottle and have you tasted blind, you could pretty confidently go for 97 without even tasting it because there's a good chance that I, he likes it so much and you all have gotten one. And whereas I was much more 98, because 98, there was, there was great potential to 98, but there was that sunburn, there, there was the need to take the right decisions. And, uh, and I feel like we played our cards really well in 98. So I, I like that vintage. At that, t- at that stage, of course, I was, I was much more involved, at least um, just in presence, but also just in, in terms of decision-making, I, was under- I understood what was going on more. And um, I... Um, yeah, no, and I was, I, was, I was caring and picking in 98, and then I was busy in the winery. So actually, some of the 98s, I cut myself pretty badly in the Moet Village. And so, I'm, you know, that's actually got some of my DNA in there. <clears throat> so that's, that's how linked I am to the whole thing. Um, 99, I think, is an important vintage for Burgundy rather than specifically for us, because it's, it's, one of, it's the great vintage probably of the 90s. And the wines are monuments. The best young Burgundy I've ever had was Latash 99. And it's just, if I feel like... I feel like if I make a wine like that, uh, one day I'll have, I'll have done something good. It's, it's like, um, yeah, you feel like you're touching greatness when you're having that wine. It's amazing. Um, a one was interesting. I and mean, after there's just such a, a, a dense set of vintages because they all, all offer different things. A one was interesting because, of, um, because it was once a vintage that would have been written off and had to be written off. Uh, it was typically French the, uh, the, uh, in the sense that um, the weather forecast was on strike great. You know, you're trying to take a tricky timing of picking. Is, is the weather going to be good or bad? Well, I don't know. How do your joints feel, Grandpa? Because there's just no other, no, no real way of telling. And so it's, uh, it was, and it, yet it worked out. And uh, it, was, it was not, on paper, it's not supposed to be good. And the wines are, the wines are really delicious. And so it was just, I, I thought it, 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 it signified a move into something new because all of a sudden this type of vintage that's not supposed to be good is 
you wonder, and then it happens again. 06 is the same set of conditions. 07, to some extent, 08 is very, very much that type of, is it, how is this going to pan out? And yet, actually, it turns out okay. If you, if you work hard and you sort and so on, and you've done your job in the, in the vineyards, then all of a sudden, those vintages are turning out to be good, whereas once upon a time, they would have turned out into disasters. I feel 08 is a real repeat of 93. 93 was, uh, was a bit a bit similar, except 08 is a little bit more intense and riper and pure. So I think we, we've elevated things since then. And, um, you know, in terms of important, if we're looking at old vintages, 76, I consider important. I obviously didn't witness it. I was born in 75, but I've heard a lot about it because um, just, it's, it just makes me think of my, my father was such a wild guy at the time. Um, so 76 is coming around, very, very hot summer and, and drought summer in, in, in France and in, in Europe. My father feels that things aren't ripe. The sugars are there, but he doesn't feel they're ripe, which is something you hear now, but at the time, I don't think you heard that much. And a lot of the 76 turned out, it was hailed as a great vintage, and then it was, um, you know, a lot of the wines turned out tough and a little dry and, and charmless. So what does he do? He says, I'm going to wait, but I find waiting while watching my colleagues picking extremely difficult. And I can relate to that. That's very hard to kind of be inactive when other ones are in the thick of it. Um, I've got a son born in 75. I should go taste the 75 Bordeaux. I hear they're pretty good. And that way I'll just take... So he takes off for two weeks um, just before harvest to go taste the 75 Bordeaux with a view of putting some in the cellar for me, which he did. And I'm very grateful for. So he picks two weeks after everyone's finished. And then this is the, the other kind of on-off binary side of my father. So he wants to bottle without filtration. And he's been wondering about how you get clearer wine. And a lot of our wines at the time had sediment and st- um, you know, all the way through the 90s, there was frequently some sediment in Dujac wines. Um, but nonetheless, so he, he had met Jules Chauvet, the famous Jules Chauvet, a few times. And this was something that was close to, his heart, to Jules Chauvet's heart. And, you know, and this guy was a serious and, and great scientist. And so he was very studious and experimental and he had a lot to offer. So my father went, had talked to him about this and Jules Chauvet had said, well, you know, Settling happens better when things are cold. You would, you should put your barrels outside, and then they will settle properly. So, does my father make an experiment with five barrels that he puts outside? No, he puts the whole cellar outside, I and mean, just every barrel in the cellar goes outside for the winter of uh, so seventy-seven to seventy-eight, and uh, which is a very cold winter. And the uh, the general advice in seventy-six had been to acidify heavily which he had, I think he had followed suit on. But with whole cluster, you get quite a lot of potassium from the whole clusters and you precipitate some tartaric. So I think some of that acidity had gone, had already precipitated out. But with the cold, the rest of it precipitated out, uh, like, a, like an unstabilized white wine in a fridge. And that was a great thing for the 76. It just goes to show that sometimes it's better to be lucky than to be talented, or I'm not sure, maybe it was talent. But um, didn't work in 77 when he, uh, when he did the same thing. But with the 76s, this advice of acidifying heavily in a tannic vintage is, is terrible because it just highlights the tannin that much more. Anyway, they settled beautifully. They were, they've got pictures of the barrels under the snow in the, in the, uh, in the courtyard. And uh, they spent a few months there getting very near freezing. And, uh, and the 76 has turned out well. I think they're some of the more charming 76s. One can use the word charming. But I just love the, you know, there are 150 barrels in the, in the courtyard. <laughs> Where do we park? When you took over for your dad in 01, mm-hmm. you're in charge now. Uh, you know, you went to Oxford, you're super smart, uh, studied other sciences, very passionate about wine. But uh, you have a bit of a youthful look to you, uh, kind of a fresh-faced youthful look. Was there skepticism 
from observers about the handoff? And did you have um, yeah miscommunications <laughs> with people or or in sh- in short, yes. Um, I mean, the minute I moved back full time in 2000, and I had some influence on 01, but I hardly had taken over. My father was still maintaining most most of the decisions. He's in the winery. He's still in the winery at Harvest. Uh, now less in a decision taking position, but he. I mean, I get up in the morning and do punch downs with him. But the minute I was back, even though we were tasting wines that were made before I came back full time, I would have clients talking along the lines of, "Oh, it's not like it was before." Oh no, the, the wines aren't the same, and, and including from a few colleagues whom I would have thought would have been more open-minded. Or, or and I had had I had had, virtu- I had, had, had very little influence on the winemaking until then. They were very much my father's, and it just goes to show. I just you you have to. It's the part in wine making that you, where you've got to ignore the critics, and you've got because they change. They change their minds, they change their, their taste change. They all need, you know, a critic comes and reviews the, the vintage. He comes and tastes your wines once in barrel and then a year later out of bottle. So he's got two snapshots and plenty of experience though to sort of take a guess as to where this is going, but they don't have the intimacy and the intimacy with the wines that you, I mean, when I'm taking November, I was doing four tastings a day and tasting through a full set of the cellar four times a day, four times a week. I know those wines and I can... It's you know it's it's um, when you're tasting like this on on, on um, when you're tasting regularly, you get a sense of direction. And the wines don't taste the same from one day to the next, from one hour to from one time of day to another. To morning and afternoon they taste different. But the more data points you collect, the more you get a sense of where that wine might be going. And that's why you're the winemaker. You're uh, versus a critic is that you're that sort of intimacy with the wines, the intimacy with the vineyards as well. Just knowing those things allow you to, you're not tasting the wine now, you're trying to taste and, and to guess at what it's going to become. And you need to, you need to have that in order to, um, to really fulfill the potential of a vintage, the potential of a vineyard. You need to really see where it's going versus seeing where it is. So, you know, you have people who taste and see nothing but the reduction that might be happening in the barrel. Well, you think, okay, there's reduction, but you know we're racking it next week, and so it's going to, and there's going to be this. But on the other hand, I really like the fact that it's spent this long on its lees because that's providing this character of the wine, and and so on. So you can take a broader view, and and it's, um, and you know, one year or one year, one decade, people are liking. You know, the '90s were about cold soaks and extraction for the most popular wines, and then later it's about you know sometimes it's about new oak, sometimes it's about absence, and you get these cycles of. You know, um, in early 2000s, I read like Frederick Meunier was the guy that everyone wanted and so on. Is he making less good wine now? He's still highly desirable, don't get me wrong, but I feel like he's not the constant feature in conversations that he was. Um, It moved, you know, Rousseau. People were rediscovering Rousseau. Really? You're, because Rousseau was making terrible wines all this time? No, he's been making consistently great wine throughout, but there's a style that appeal. In the 90s, it might have been Dugapi or Duga. Um, so you get, you get these things that change. And the fact is, as a winemaker, as your duty to your clients and to, your, and to yourself is you find, you find a style that you, or you, find a, you have an ideal and you keep working towards that ideal. You have this sort of platonic ideal of Clodoche or something like that. And when you, um, you're never going to reach it um, because 
perfection does not exist, but you're going to keep striving for it. And that's what's somewhat beautiful in winemaking is that every year you get to start again with a new set of circumstances and you're going to see if you get a little closer to that ideal or not. But that's, um, that's what's fun. He's keeping it fun. <clears throat> Jeremy Sace, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levy. Jeremy Sace of Dujac and Trian. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.